0: Welcome to Classical Etc., a show that dives into the philosophy, culture, and heart of classical education. You're in the studio with Shane Saxon. All right, so on today's episode, we're going to talk about curriculum. Memorial Press is a curriculum provider. It's kind of at the heart of everything we do, all the various institutions that we're a part of and that we're working to serve. So Martin, first, definitionally, what is a curriculum?
1: <laughs> a course of study. Uh... I, a, a curriculum is a, um, a collection of educational, uh, material that has a beginning, a middle and an end, uh, that has a goal that uh, all the parts are aimed at and that works together in some way so that it's comprehensive and, um, and, uh, um, and, you know, deep and fulfilling and all that. Um, and, uh, and it's, you know, we, we have a curriculum in Memorial Press, uh, uh, formally now we, we had a lot of resources that we, you know, when we started out, we had a lot of books and on different subjects and, but the goal was always to complete some sort of whole curriculum and so, you know, you see that in our curriculum packages now where you can
0: look at it and you can see that it's a whole thing. Tony, what about you? Define a curriculum for us.
2: Oh, I wasn't ready with a two word thing to shorten his. Sorry. Actually, I think he did a very fine job. I totally agree with Martin about what a curriculum is. And, and that we, even though we didn't have a formal curriculum all those years ago, I taught the very first fifth grade here. Aging myself, and um, Cheryl handed me that stack of books that then became our fifth grade curriculum. So it was chosen in her head, and mm-hmm. we just hadn't developed it. And then we developed it through the school as you know, as the need arose. Remember when she came? into our Latin classrooms at five till eight every morning and handed us our Latin lesson for the day oh, yeah. that she had finished writing at two <laughs> yeah. o'clock in the morning. Yeah, so. I'd never taught Latin before. I'd sat in her Latin <laughs> class for two years, never seen that vocabulary specifically, didn't know what the grammar form was going to be. And at five till eight, she handed it to me. and There sat my students waiting in five minutes for me to teach this Latin class.
1: Well, we said something about the Some of the materials in our curriculum, because I mean, it was something that you could teach. I mean, I had taught Latin before, but not necessarily (coughs) the same vocabulary, not exactly. You know, and so you could. That was the nice thing about the form, which is the form series, is what you're talking about. Was the prototype? That's right. That's right. And it was. It's so well constructed that you can hand it to somebody walking into the classroom, and you can teach it, and they will learn it. I mean, what? Mm -hmm. How many programs are out there that you can do that with?
2: Yeah, it worked but it really wasn't my ideal (laughs) way um, to prepare for class.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you're you're giving them vocabulary, which there's a word or two in there that you've never seen before, but the students don't know that. (laughs) Uh, But you learned it there on the spot, and so did everybody else.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So Paul, when Martin says that curriculum is a course of study, is there something that distinguishes curriculum as we have defined it as something that we have K to twelve, a, a beginning, middle, and end, and various materials that are used for different classes. Uh, that's a that's a phenomenal question. I was really hoping you were
3: going to ask me the same question you asked them. We was, we answered it completely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, actually, I was I was going to say I wanted to disagree with you, but I couldn't. <laughs> um, I did want to <laughs> emphasize something, which is um, which actually gets right to your point, is that this, there, there is specific content in a curriculum because I, I once, I I called up a superintendent once trying to sell Memorial Press curriculum, like this would be really good for you. And he's like, no, thanks. We already have a curriculum. And I realized what he meant was something very different from what I meant by curriculum. What he meant was he had standards. Hmm. He, he had standards that said by third grade, the students are going to be able to, you know, write a paragraph. Mm -hmm. That was his curriculum. But what we mean by that is that there's That that, no, there's, there's specific content in here. There's specific, yeah, there's specific skills as well, but you're going to learn those skills by learning Roman history. Right. Um, And we do that by saying, not only are you going to learn Roman history this year, but you're going to learn Roman history through this book. Right. Because this particular book, Famous Men of Rome is going to teach you um, Roman history through biography. Uh, which we think is a, is is an important methodological principle in the way you're going to teach younger children history, right? Um, and so, I think that was your question, right? Yes, it's absolutely. Content. Um, there 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 has to be content in a curriculum; otherwise, it's ethereal, and it's um, there's there's a difficulty in achieving it. Because how do you know when you got a third grader writing at a third grade level? I mean, I've seen standards like that before. Mm. Right, A third grader should write at a third grade level. Well, that's really helpful. Um, but when you have a, a teacher's guide that shows, like, they should be able to write this paragraph, right, or, you know, approximate that sort of thing, that gives flesh and blood to it. Um, what he was talking about sounds like what I would call a curriculum guideline. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. There was something else I was going to say, but he just— I
0: completed his thought for me. This set me on track. You guys, <laughs> yeah, such an old couple. It's great, great, great chemistry. Um, so, Martin, one critique that I feel like I hear against people who have a curriculum focus is the experiential um, uh, critique that you know, back in the day when I was in school, my history teacher was so boring, and I don't remember anything that he said. What I do remember is that one teacher who gave me a passion for this topic. So content's really not that important. What I need is a teacher who is, you know, really dynamic and who's really exciting and and content it, it you know it it's just it's going to change in every situation. Would you critique that critique? Yeah, to me that's a school that doesn't have a curriculum. Mm-hmm.
1: That's that's a, almost a paradigm case of that because we, you know, curriculum is not a bunch of teachers that you have in your school uh, many of whom even the same grade are doing different things in the same subject. And that's not a curriculum a curriculum. Wh- what a curriculum does for you is allows you to advance. Okay. It means that the second grade has to end in a certain spot and the third grade has to begin in a certain spot so that you can continue on that path uh, uh, that, that is trying to get you to a certain point in the end. if you have people who are doing different things, that completely mucks up the, any anything you might call a curriculum because who knows, where's a third grade teacher know to start? What usually happens is we keep doing, we spin our wheels mm-hmm. for years and years and we keep, we're doing things that, that should have been done last year, but weren't with half the class or whatever it is. And that's why I always say that most schools <coughs> think they have a curriculum, but they don't. Mm-hmm. They really don't have a credit because the curriculum is works together. This, this gear is connecting with the next gear and, and, and so on. Most schools just simply don't have that. And you, if you ask them for it, you get something like what Paul was saying Mm -hmm. he got from the, the one administrator, you get some guidelines or something. Um, And and that's that's not a curriculum. A curriculum. That
3: content is just it's so important Mm -hmm. because you know I I had a friend teaching at a school and he got to choose. He was a literature teacher. He got to choose which books he was going to teach. And Mm -hmm. I thought, well, then the next year, how is that literature teacher going to have anything common to refer back to Mm -hmm. if they don't know that all of these students read these certain books right and having that content defined takes a huge load off of the teacher like I just remember the stress he was under during professional development in the summer of like I've got to choose what books I'm going to read well don't you have a
1: curriculum department at your school isn't that what they should be doing is telling mm-hmm. you that I mean mm-hmm. that's the thing I mean uh, but the other part of your question was um you know what about the quality of the teacher well that is irrelevant to to the curriculum in mm. many ways. I mean, uh, okay, so you have a t- uh, class that was boring. Well, was the curriculum boring, or was the person who presented it boring? And if it's the person who presented it boring, then replace the person. Mm. But not you need to have <laughs> uh, that. Not not the not right. the material. Right. You know, I mean, it's, you know, a good teacher is going to be able to make any material, uh, you know, exciting for for a child. Um, but but. Uh, Here's what happens. I I was in a school and, um, and I went into the advanced Latin course and the teacher was doing basically her own. She was, she was a, a professor at a nearby college, knew Latin. I think she taught Latin at the college and she was there and they were doing the conversational Latin and all this stuff. And the principal asked me what I thought of the teacher. And I said, how long are you going to have her? Because when she's gone, all that stuff she's doing goes bye-bye. Right. And, and whereas if you've got a curriculum and you have material in there that is the same every year, it's a part of the curriculum, it works into the whole thing. Then when that teacher's gone, the next teacher can do the same thing, maybe not as well as that teacher did, but she'll be able to do the same thing, and you'll have consistency from year to year. But the problem with a with a really good teacher in a lot of cases is they're not replaceable. Right. You can't just you can't just uh, clone that person. And so your you know Jacques Barzun, one of his three educational fallacies, um, is that you can base everything on on what this one really great teacher did. You just bottle that mm-hmm. and you give it to the next. person. can't do that. You can't bottle that. You got to have a curriculum that's there every
0: year. Speaks to why our curriculum has been so helpful for so many homeschooling parents, and it's because they're learning it right alongside of their mm-hmm. children, and they remember what it was like the day before they mastered it mm-hmm. to not know, and what they need to to know. Mm-hmm. And with these expert teachers, they've forgotten long a long time mm-hmm. ago what it was like to not know, and it, mm-hmm. it creates this gap.
3: I, I think also like a curriculum in a homeschool context, right. Let's the younger kids know when I get to be that age, I get to do X, mm-hmm. Y, or Z. Right. And so they're looking at what their older siblings are doing. And because there's a set path, right. Of like, okay, when you know, you're in second grade, you get to start Latin and okay. Then they know when they hit seven years old, you know, they can say, Hey mom, why don't I get to do that? Right. There's, there's, there's an expectation that goes for the school as well. Right. Um, there's, there's, you know, you you're, you're your sophomores know that when they hit this this level, they're going to be doing X, Y, or Z, right? And so there's a, it sets expectations as well for students. They know what's coming their way. It's well, like a rite of
1: passage. What we're talking about is it's consistency. Uh, mm-hmm. a curriculum gives you consistency from year to year.
0: So, Tani, you were there at the beginning with Mrs. Lowe as she was developing this curriculum. I've always been curious. I know that it was in her head, largely, how much of it was apparent to you at the beginning? And how much did you discover, oh, th- here's the path as as you guys built it?
2: It wasn't really apparent to me at the beginning, except for what she gave me to teach. And But then as we went along, you know, we were so small then, too. We had one fourth grade, one fifth grade, one sixth. But what she did is encouraged us to read all of the novels and the history books from the year before we taught. And from the year that comes after we taught so that we would have the context of what the students know and the context for where they're going and connections that we could make. And that was really important to her was that we do make those connections and that we are guiding the students toward harder things by, I think in a, I think I did this in a previous podcast. Where you know to lead them to the Lady of Shalott. We do, um, we do King Arthur with Lancelot and Elaine, and then in the fifth grade or sixth grade, and then we do um, Anne of Green Gables where she almost drowns playing the Lady of Shalott. And then when we get to the actual poem, our students have the context Mm -hmm. for that. But we're also hopefully reminding them that of these other things, we do the same thing with the Trojan War, leading us to the Iliad. And so it is all connected in her head. But she started it knowing what she wanted our high school students to accomplish. And then she worked her way backwards to get there to that. Like, what do we need to do in grammar school to prepare our students for high school for these certain things. We want them to read Latin literature. We want them to read um, Shakespeare. We want them to read, well, you want them to do, I'm going to do one of those subjects. We want them to do advanced math. We want them to get to calculus. So what do we need to do in the grammar school to make that happen? And what do we need to do in the primary school to prepare our school, our students, for what they're going to do in the grammar school? So it was all... Just this beautiful plan in her head mm-hmm. that, thank goodness, you know, she did manage to um, impart to us and get most of it done. But it was, you know, it was a, it changed a little, but not a lot. Every year she would bring me a sheet of paper that said this is the high school final curriculum every year. And I would say, but you said it was the final curriculum last year <laughs> and then the year before. And I had this stack. I've started stapling them. And every time she would bring me a new one. I would pull my stack out and she would say, oh, now stop it. (laughs) (laughs) And I'd staple that one on. So it did change a little, but not a lot. It's still a lot of what it was 20 years ago.
3: Well, and I was just telling you the story of when I was, what, fourth grade and fourth, fifth grade, and, you know, I'd go to her once or twice a week for classes and she was making us memorize Horatius back then. Hmm. Right. I mean, yes. her expectations yes. got higher as the years went on because I only had to memorize like, I don't know, eight or nine stanzas. But um, but that was in the curriculum because it was an important part of this
0: trajectory that she
2: had. Well, yes.
0: So Mrs. Lowe had this plan kind of in her head. And that's part <laughs> of what made it the path that we have. Martin, a few minutes ago, you kind of sarcastically took a shot at curriculum departments What's happening there? Why why aren't these departments? Why don't they have these kinds of visions in their head? What do you think is affecting their well, focus? Yeah, well, if you're talking about uh, public schools and some private schools, what
1: happens is something like Common Core will come along, or whatever the newest thing that the state passes, or whatever, and they'll they'll come up with these standards. So they 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 take everything they were doing and they throw it out, and they tell the teachers, uh, "We just need to do that like Common Core." And so they're given these documents that don't help anybody do anything. Um, I, I knew a Spanish teacher who was kind of uh, a friend of our kids, and um, she taught a Spanish uh, course at the local school. And I said, well, what, what, what book are you using? She said, well, I'm not using a book. I, I, have, to, I have to do like Spanish Common Core which she had to put together herself. So mm-hmm. you have all these teachers being curriculum developers who have no experience, who don't know the rest of the curriculum, who that's, that's what I mean by saying mm-hmm. schools don't have a curriculum. It's just a, it's a hodgepodge of, of random materials that teachers themselves at individual schools are putting together, which is different from the school down the road, which is so if you transfer, you know, you get into situations like you may, you, you may read you know, they'd be lucky if they read a, a book like Charlotte's Web. They don't read much classic literature in schools because of copyright problems, and mm-hmm. and those, the books are too expensive for them. Um, but even though they have more money than the private schools that do, <laughs> um, and and you might read. At this school, you're in second grade and you read Charlotte's Web and then you transfer to this other school for third grade and they're reading Charlotte's Web there, so you read it twice. And you may even get to read it again in fourth grade because they're doing it <laughs> at this school that you had to transfer to. It's it's so ridiculous. They mm-hmm. they that there is no coherent um, curriculum. Uh, planning really going on at state levels, or even at district levels. And it's very at faddish It's very fat. It changes all the time. As soon as you put the put the the final piece in, even if you did build a curriculum of your own, uh, here comes the
3: next thing mm-hmm. that's fashionable, and you got to throw that all out and start over again. Well, and I mean, I've seen I've seen administrators also say, "Well, we've got this new set of standards that we have to meet." Mm-hmm. Let's just take what we're doing and show how that meets those. Yeah, things. and they, put, they, they and, and it's yeah. and it's it's a game, right? Mm-hmm. It, it's, mm-hmm. it's it's n- it's no longer something that's actually driving anything. Right. It's a, we have to jump through these hoops. Yeah, but so.
0: there's no incentive in the system for consistency. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So one critique against curriculum on that consistency point could be that in various situations of the country, various schools, various kinds of people of various backgrounds don't need to have the same curriculum, perhaps. You know, someone could say, you know, if you're you're from Wisconsin, like I am, you got to learn about the tribes. They they migrated to Wisconsin. And so in fourth grade, you need Wisconsin state history. So so every school needs to be hyper-specific. And so a large vision of curriculum doesn't work. How would you respond to that?
1: Well, uh, uh, traditionally in this country, states did determine that sort of stuff. There was no, I mean, the Department of Education the federal department is a fairly recent thing. So, I mean, I have old books from like Kansas State, but they had coherent Kansas State, which all the schools in Kansas were supposed to do. And it was very specific grade mm. by grade. Mm. So there was a – that's that was a legitimate curriculum. That's fine. That's no problem. And you're doing a little bit – something in Kansas that's a little bit different from Minnesota or whatever – uh, but they don't even do that anymore. It's, it's not consistent in the state. It's not consistent, you know, from district to district, from school to school within a district. There's no consistency at all in, in a lot of these places.
3: Let me interject here and say that in the context of the liberal arts, right, which we're trying to say we are, we are promoting an education that is universal. Right, I mean, we're speaking to the the universality of truth, goodness, and beauty in the world, and in humanity, and you know, yada yada yada. Right, and a nice follow up for truth, beauty, and goodness. Yada yada yada. <laughs> um, so there has to be, right? I think if so, if you go from Wisconsin and studying the tribes to you know, I don't know, come down here to Kentucky state history, the there should be enough common between the two, right? We're all the same human beings, right? Um, we largely share the same culture. Now there's a lot of amazing unique local things, right? And those things should be celebrated, those things should be taught, et cetera. But there's enough that's common to all of us that we should be able to Well to the thing, go back thing that should forth. be
1: common is we have this unit in state history in all states. Mm-hmm. You can do it differently in each state, but you've got that unit is the same from from state to state. And you know, probably some general requirements of what you have to do but i mean that, that's very true i mean in california when i grew up uh in the in the 60s and 70s we studied the california missions um now they're not doing that anymore but 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 and i think and i'm i i'm i I'm, I'm a an advocate for for local and state history mm-hmm. i think it's important um but just have but at least have even at your state level say this is this is your this is your unit. You, you need to do a unit in middle school on state history or whatever that is. At least have that be consistent. You can actually fill that with some different things even. But all states and all schools uh, should have some true common core, um, which is, you know, uh, you know we, we call ours a classical core curriculum because we're saying this is the best of the best. This is this is the the, the thing that has held us. Uh, together, and 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 you know, over 100, 200 years, these are the things that are worth all students studying. And there's still room to do a few other things, but but everybody should do these things. And you know, Ed Hirsch is big on this that we should all have common knowledge, common background knowledge. And the the classical core curriculum really tries to do that uh, for a classical curriculum. And the more schools that do it, the more. You know, uh, they'll have a certain body of knowledge in common so they can talk to each other.
0: That's well said. I think I think you're right that if the tri- the Trivium is teaching, preparing students how to think, every student needs to be thought, prepared mm-hmm. how to think, and curriculum can do that and still leave some room for some particularities mm-hmm. in each situation. Sure. So, Paul, coming back to you, with the Memorial Press curriculum specifically, we are kind of as an institution have focused on producing curriculum why did we make that decision rather than focusing maybe more specifically on something else in education are
3: you talking about like the difference between uh creating our resources that we have for students and teachers versus like theory books yeah or things that something like that mm. i think one way I've characterized Mrs. Lowe for years was she was an eminently practical person. Mm. She was somebody who had her feet on the ground, but she could, she could, you know, think and engage at the highest levels as well. Right. Which is very, I think in that sense, she was very unique and she was like, it doesn't matter if I can conceptualize all these high ideals if I can't put it into practice. And she, she saw, you know, the need for that, that just, you know, very practical. How do we get this done, right? So we could have we could have written guidelines saying, you know, you need to be able to do these things in these grades, um, but that that would not have um, empowered as many people to actually get those things done. And I've seen I've seen educational plans that are wonderfully um, ambitious and informed and and sort of the the books that are out there that you can do with regards to classical education. But for somebody who doesn't know, hasn't been classically educated to get one of those, those plans and look at it and go, oh my gosh, this is a list of 150 books for this grade. What am I to do? You know, well, the the plan is written in such a way that it's sort of like you can pick from any of these, right? But the teacher doesn't know that they feel like they got to get it all done or, or whatever it is. And the teacher doesn't have the background to make those sort of decisions. And so it's sort of making that decision to say, okay, here's a consistent curriculum. Here's resources we've poured, you know, a decade and a half. No, I'm thinking it's 2015. I mean, we've (laughs) two and a half decades uh, into, you know, developing all of these things. Then, you know, that's all that that, that, um, effort then can be poured into the teacher's Ironically. And it yeah, started, and you, oh, I'm sorry. You said this before.
1: You're talking about, you know, a teacher having to be, you know, not just a teacher, but I but did the additional duties of, of Developing curriculum. curriculum yeah. This is really true. Teachers have enough to do uh, without being their own curriculum developer. Uh, you are doing them a favor by giving them the material that needs to be taught. And they may want to teach something else, but... Uh, you, you know, if there's room in the curriculum for that, but they need to do the stuff that's in the curriculum, and the next teacher that comes to replace them when they leave can keep it consistent and do that same material. But but you're you're really creating a problem for them if you make ha- make them have to do curriculum development as well. Let them teach.
2: I was just going to say, from to Paul's point, Cheryl was very practical, mm-hmm. but but it started from a very practical purpose. Is she felt like her children weren't being educated. Mm-hmm. And so she wanted to find the best education for them. So she did read all of that high, elevated, philosophical stuff in order to figure out what she felt like a true education was. But then she was able to take it one step further and say, I don't want to just, I mean, what I've found is essential. And so her passion for it then led her to not just educating her children, but whoever could come into her house to take Latin and famous men of Rome. And then it just grew all by itself, just from word of mouth. And then, you know, her idea that there is no Latin curriculum out here for young students, but this is when they memorize and this is when they need to, if we're going to have them translating, <clears throat> sorry, then they need to they need to learn the grammar forms young when they can do it. So she wrote Latina Christiana. So it all basically started in that room above her garage um, and in her living room. At the beginning, she was just doing what she could do for whoever would come to her. But I don't think she ever envisioned that it would end up being a school of 750 students or people using it across the world. That was just... It was all, as Lee says all the time, it was providence that all of this has been able to come together like it has. But it did start very practically. How can I educate our children? And what is the best way to do it? What is in real education? That's where it started.
1: You know, providence in, a, in a, a coherent, straightforward vision of what education should be. Because mm-hmm. everything really revolves around that.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've noticed that too in my specific role, trying to help people start schools as a an agent of Memorial Press, as someone affiliated with our company, what I feel like sometimes I bring to the table is not really my own personal experience, but the experience as someone who's been a part of an institution that has thought about materials that anyone can use, that have been fine-tuned, that are excellent, and to be able to be an expert on those materials kind of sets us apart from someone who comes along and just says, I'm a human being who wants to help other people flourish. We, we all are. Um, but I also know a lot about these books and can help you to use them.
3: Well, and I mean, on that note, I remember uh, Cheryl turning to me one day, she was like, Paul, you really need to, to market that these curriculum guides, these lesson plans we have is, is the way to start a school. You know, this is, if you want to start a school, you don't have to think about what you're going to teach. It's already done for you. And that is the majority of the work. Because that's what she poured her all of her effort into starting Highlands was, what are we going to teach? Because she was developing this curriculum plan, right? And what and, can
2: we get done in a day?
3: Right, right. And she was like, this is, this is, I think she was kind of going, I wish I'd had this 20 years ago, you know? Sure. Um, and so for those people that that, you know, you're dealing with or think about certain schools, that's, that's a huge piece that's just taken right off of your shoulders. But again, this
1: does, uh, this does work against this idea of the, of innovation and <laughs> creativity <laughs> and all this sort of thing, because people think that that somehow implies that order is bad, <laughs> that, that order is somehow in conflict with creativity. And it's not, I mean, go back and look at, I, I you know, my, my daughter-in-law is an artist, she learned the specific basic things that you had to know to be a good painter. Um, you know, uh uh you 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 have to learn certain rules even in creativity. So when you learn how to write, oh you know, this this thing let's just, just be creative and imaginative and just you know think something. That's not the way to do it. You need a structure. I mean, I remember being given instructions like that when i was a student and i had no i had no idea what to do and didn't do anything very well because nobody gave me any rules on how to do it it's not the opposite of creativity order is not the
0: opposite of creativity
2: no and it really is irritating to me when people think that because we do have a developed curriculum and we do have study guides That that is a teacher killer because or that it would make a teacher lazy. It could make a teacher lazy, but that's not the intention. The intention is that that is it's a guide, just like it says it's a guide. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that you aren't still going to have flourishing conversation. It's just supposed to guide you toward good conversation in your classrooms and toward inspiring imagination and awe in your students because the content is so good. So having the content is that's the easy part. We've given people that. But actually, what you do with it in the classroom, that is your freedom. And there's there. I've just seen such excellent teachers bringing it alive. So it's not a teacher killer. It's a it should be a teacher helper. And I would like to jump over to the homeschool market just for a second, if that's okay, to say that it was developed for a school um, and, you know, grew out of a school, which does make us a unique curriculum company. But when Cheryl, you know, her vision also was, and it's she started working with homeschoolers, that was her vision, she didn't. And she was really, a homeschooler herself. She was a homeschooler, and she didn't really intend that she would end up with this big institution. But um, but when we de- when we started developing it for the homeschool market, and it was going to be the same curriculum, we made some mistakes because we just sent it out like this is what we do in the second grade, this is what we do in the third grade. And it wasn't perfect for the homeschool market. And our homeschoolers that are on the forum, that call us, that email us, they were so helpful to us to let us know what those mistakes were and to help us help each other. They were really helping each other because the changes that we made to make it successful in their homes then helped other homeschool parents. And I mean, it's still a work in progress. It's still, it's not perfect and it's not static. It's a living, breathing thing, which that's a problem because when we make changes to guides, it's really irritating to people, but 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 we're committed to excellence. We are committed to excellence. And it's just, I don't see really that we would ever be finished. I can't, I would like to be finished. And I had this thought that we would get through 12th grade and be finished, but it
0: but then Marv went off and started a college. So now we're going I mean, to grade I mean, <laughs> who knows that's what. True. Yeah.
3: Uh, Shane, can we can we dig in more Tanya's? You know, Tanya mentioned this idea of it not being a teacher killer. And I feel like we kinda need to talk about how to use the guides, mm-hmm. you know, what you're what how you're going to use it in kindergarten or first grade versus how you're going to use it in eleventh, twelfth grade. Can we do that, Tanya? Sure. Do you want to start in the lower school?
2: I can start and then you'll pick it up in I'll, middle school. I'll pick school. It in middle school, for sure. Yeah, so in, so in the lower school, in primary especially, the guides are used specifically at the total direction of the teacher. So the teacher is helping the students orally to come up with the answers to the questions, putting through discussion, but, but really helping the students to learn to form a good sentence. We're really working on mastering a sentence. And then the teacher puts it on the board and they talk about punctuation and Capitalization and words that are hard to spell, and then the students copy it in their best penmanship using their three P's. <laughs> so it's very structured, very disciplined, very much 100% teacher led. And then in the grammar school, we start loosening that up. Third grade is pretty much like second, but then by fourth, we start doing just keywords, and the students are making their own sentences. and. By the sixth, the students are working very independently to get ready for middle school where they are working. So you a lot. would say
0: the key differences are how much clear and explicit instruction the teacher is giving the student mm-hmm. as they are completing the books and the exercises in the books. That's the main difference between like K and fourth,
2: whether we're reading the Bible oh. or um, a literature book, novel, or whatever it is that the there's still going to be this discussion that hopefully will engage the students and and instill in them a sense of wonder at all they're learning. But then their written work is it's mu- it's very much about modeling and it's very black and white in the early years. But by fourth grade. Especially fifth and sixth, it becomes this questions become more abstract, and the discussions get more elevated.
0: And do you think that pattern is true in the homeschool setting as well as the school setting? What are the differences?
2: No, it should be the same. We would expect that it be the same. Now, it is harder in the homeschool setting because you may have six children on six different levels. So, how you do that? <laughs> um, there are on our forum are some amazing stories of how how these homeschoolers arrange their days so that they work with one student in literature one day and another student the next where and they're in and then that student that they work with the one day is more independent the next. It's amazing. And I don't really know how they do it exactly, but they do they do it.
3: The study guides are in some senses exhaustive. Right. You don't they have to r- answer in written form every single question in the study, guide, even at
2: that level. That's true. You don't.
0: And more, what were you going to add?
1: Well, I was just going to uh, interject uh, something I tell mm-hmm. homeschooling mothers who do have a lot of children of different ages, um, that, that uh, there are certain things you can do with multi-grades together, uh, th- mm-hmm. those subjects like that are not, cumulative and incremental like history and literature i mean you can do three age levels in that and you know just have them vary the work a little bit whereas subjects like um math math and latin i think are subjects where you you just are where you each individual is where they are and you can't really do 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 it to, right. to a very great extent so it does ease the, the life of a homeschool family though, when, when you can take some subjects like history and literature and, and do two or three children together in, in, in the same thing. So they're all basically reading the same kind
3: of stuff, maybe doing uh, different exercises or something.
0: So then Paul, you have thoughts on how this kind of shifts going into upper school, high mm-hmm.
3: school. Yeah. I, I'm thinking back to the first year I taught at Highlands and I was, I made a lot of assumptions um, which is funny because like I came in and I remember walking in that seventh grade classroom and it was a seventh grade classroom full of boys. And I said, look, I'm giving you this study guide. We are not going to go through this question by question. You are to use this like a notebook. And it worked out wonderfully, but I did notebook checks administration made sure I did notebook checks, right? Which was, they were study guide checks, right? And so they'd have to hand them in to me every few weeks. And I was making sure, and I told them, I said, the only homework you have walking out of this class is to make sure your study guide is complete. Now you can do that while we talk, right? Because while we're having this discussion, I'm going to make sure we're going to be hitting all of these points, but I'm not going to say number three, what's the answer to number three, right? And so it gets them more used to this sort of dynamic discussion, And I would spend the vast majority of the class time having discussions and they were learning to pull out the big ideas. Right. Um, And they could do that because the study guide questions were
2: guiding them to what the big ideas were. Step by step.
3: And, and they would, you know, and they had the total freedom at the end of the classroom be like, Mr. Schaefer, you really did not talk about number six. And I'm really confused as to what that was. And we'd go over it. Right. I mean, that was, that opportunity was there because they were learning through that. So, you know, and we'd kind of, help them through that seventh, eighth grades. Um, and I, and I saw, you know, and once, and I love taking credit for this student's growth, um, but she was in eighth grade and she, at the beginning of the year, it was very much Mr. Schaefer, what is the right answer to number two? What is the right answer to number three? I don't know what to put for number four. And, um, and I would always turn that back on her and say, well, what do you think, what do you think it should be? Right. Like we've had this discussion. So, you know, give me an answer. And like three or four years later, I walked into her classroom. She was in a classroom learning philosophy. And she asked a question. I don't even think I could articulate. And I was like, she, she made that transition to my class. And you're taking credit. I'm for absolutely that. taking credit for that because <laughs> she went from this, this lower school, What's the very concrete answer to starting to think, well, okay, well, what's the deeper meaning to this, mm-hmm. right? And that set her up for when she hit our, our philosophy and metaphysics class in, in, in 11th grade, and I think it was Theo Harwood teaching that class, mm-hmm. and she was ready to engage. And that 7th, 8th grade time, I think it, it's it's time to... I mean, as Tanya mentioned, fourth, fifth, sixth grade, we're breaking them out of that step-by-step. Step. We're telling you exactly what to write down, but seventh and eighth grade, that's kind of where, where walls are falling down. Mm. You don't have those crutches anymore to set you up for high school level work, right? And high school, you, you, you know, you're doing the same thing where that guide is a guide for the student, right? And the teacher has a copy to make sure that they're hitting the major things, but the teacher's leading this discussion, right? Um, ideally. Right. And and if you don't have an opportunity for discussion, right, if you're a homeschooler and you're, you're there by yourself, you have prompts to make you to, for you to write essays about and to think and to engage and to put that down in written form. Um,
2: or you have the Online Academy. Or the Online or, Academy. I hate to be
3: self, super self-promoting. Well, but, but I mean, yeah.
2: it's true that there is help out there to mm-hmm. give students the discussion that really will enrich their education. The Online right. Academy instructional videos, which, you know, we need to do more of. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, there's a lot of opportunities out there to get that discussion. But those st- those study guides are going to make sure you get the basic understanding of what's happening and the, there's going to be plenty of prompts for you to start thinking more deeply about, you know, what am I doing? But the 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 teacher doesn't – in the upper school does not need to feel confined to say, going number one, number two, number three, number four, number five, mm. which the lower school teacher is going to do more of. Yeah, and that's, that's something I w- wanted to talk
1: about too is uh, a curriculum when you're using it at the lower school level and a curriculum when you're using it at the upper school level, it, it – the role of the teacher is 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 a little bit different. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're at the the lower school level, um, you you really need to be dependent on the curriculum, and uh, you know the, the teacher obviously has to execute it and, and do it properly and all that. But in uh, having worked, worked founded a couple schools and worked at several worked at another one or two, um, it it's a good curriculum at the lower mm-hmm. level. Is a safety net, and even I remember my, when my kids went to a private school. They had a they had a set curriculum, and there was a couple not very good teachers there, but even then they learned because they had that that curriculum there mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. A, as a safety net. Whereas when you get into the upper grades, there's more space for the teacher to operate in, right. and and you you need a, a learned more learned person to to teach an upper school class. It just requires more of the teacher. And it's a different kind of teacher you're going to be looking for. That's right.
2: And we are very, at Highlands, we are very specific about how our primary and grammar school classes are run because we're looking for that consistency from class to class to class and that the students all have the same experience by middle and high school you've got different teachers that they're they're freer i suppose mm. we don't sit on them like we do the primary and grammar school teachers it is a whole different animal mm-hmm. and wouldn't it be really nice if we had some kind of help for students taking metaphysics wouldn't it be great <laughs> to yeah, have like a metaphysics study no. guide? I think I think there's somebody somebody's
3: written
1: No,
2: I don't think so because it's not on my desk.
3: <laughs> well, I, I think the study guide is is fairly well polished, but the teacher's guide oh,
1: is well, the one that needs some. But some how
2: is the teacher going to teach metaphysics without a teacher guide? Well, as,
3: glad as she's pointed toward you
2: right now, <laughs> and not. as Martin said, this is where the
3: the the, the just the 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 highly polished and, and
2: informed teacher just shines. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Videos would be really nice too. Metaphysics videos, wouldn't that be nice?
0: That would be nice. That would be nice. So let's give some help to those schools that they're trying to do upper school history or upper school metaphysics and they don't have a metaphysics guide for some reason, or they're trying to do <laughs> upper school science and they don't have a great, uh, a teacher or they don't, they don't you know at that point mm-hmm. th- these if you've looked at these high school history curriculums they're dense they're difficult what's your advice to those schools how do they how how do they get around that obstacle
3: well i i, I would say first of all i mean that is a very legitimate issue because there there were times even teaching the book of the ancient greeks right where i'm like i, I we're not going to sit here and read 30 pages in class together if i can give a 30 minute lecture and condense it down mm-hmm. um And, and so, but, but I had the background knowledge to be able to, to kind of quickly condense that down for them. Right. And so that, that's going to happen in American history. It's going to happen in European history. Right. Those, those are things that happen. And, you know, you have those dense textbooks and, you know, there may be some engaging stories in there, but really the teacher, you know, Dustin Warren is amazing at bringing in stories and, and making that come alive. Um, So, so, you know, that is, I I will say that's a legitimate issue. Um, Number 1, I think there are there are a lot of people in every community that have a passion for different things mm. even if they come in for one class, right? I mean, mm. I'm thinking of, you know, Mr. Dennis and um mm-hmm. a couple of like a physics we had an advanced physics
1: teacher. Well, and we
2: had a doctor teach biology one year because we didn't have a biology mm-hmm. teacher. Well, I mean, just, you know,
1: you, you talk about something like, uh, you mentioned Mr. Dennis who who to me is the model kind of teacher you want to have in the upper school Mm -hmm. to teach something like history. And, you know, we do use a more formalized textbook. We don't use a lot of textbooks in our program, but we, we do for the upper school American history and European history. And that's not bad. I mean, Mr. Dennis used the textbooks that we were, and he would, he would, if you watched him teach, he'd get up there and it wasn't a textbooky approach he was taking even though he was doing it out of a textbook because he had long experience teaching this he was well read he was learned and he would he had an anecdote for Every example he had to give,
2: he did. But what Shane is saying, what do you do when you don't have? That I know that's teacher? what I'm saying. I'm,
1: uh, you, so that's the idea. You, you are, yeah. But I mean, at least in that case, you still have the textbook you can use, so you could still get that knowledge in there. And it's you, just going to be but a lot you do of. It's hard work. Ultimately, yep. Yeah, it's going to be ideal, hard work. The ideal is to have a good teacher teaching it who who is who is widely read and can put some of those events in context probably, you know, then Mr. Dennis was an older person. Right. And really you almost need an older person to teach some of those subjects. You know, those of us who grew up in the uh, 60s and 70s, you know, we, we knew all about World War II. I can tell you some things on World War II. I could I could do a class on World War II, even though I've never taught it and don't really, <laughs> don't really want to. But um, But there's a context you have as a person who's lived through a certain era. So that's one thing is you probably need an older teacher to teach some of those the history yeah. subjects, you know.
3: But also because you have that that set curriculum, um, you and you're not you don't somebody who's coming in that say is not a veteran teacher of American history or European history or whatever, they can they can take that they can read that text. And then go try to find two or three outside things that helps bring that alive. Mm-hmm. And they can teach that lesson. And that right? is the
2: key is just, I mean, I just taught fifth grade or sixth grade. And so when the week that I taught Charlemagne, I bought every remainder book on the Middle Ages from Barnes and Noble. And I just had them on a shelf. And the night before I would teach, I would go read everything and every one of those books. <laughs> I'd look in the index Everything about Charlemagne, jot down, you know, some interesting things, things that I felt like the students needed to know. It was hard work to teach that first year. And to teach from a high school history text, I'd do it the same way. I would Mm -hmm. just read the chapter, find some outside sources to help me, and then make a script.
3: And and because Tanya says I can be self-promoting, if you're a small school, you got two or three students, you need to teach American history, there's the online academy. We can work with you.
0: I think at least one model I've seen that is pretty interesting, um, and I have uh, is Highlands Latin Indianapolis. And I haven't talked to Mrs. Houston about her kind of thinking when she was hiring in, in high school, but what it appeared to me as just kind of observing later is that she's hired a couple of really really talented language people um, to teach Latin and Greek, and then she's trained middle school teachers who are talented to also teach Latin. And so she has this awesome like language core for her high school. Mm-hmm. And then they have, you know, now they've attracted really good literature and history teachers, but having those really strong language people gave the school a reason to kind of attract people because mm-hmm. they're like, we can get great Latin education at this school. And then, you know, you can meet the, um, the needs in the other areas until you're able to bring in those, that great talent. And that's kind of a unique yeah. way that we can do it. That's
2: right. I mean, I could, yes, I could take, a concise history of the American Republic. And I could go into high school and I could teach that. Mm -hmm. There is no way I could teach an upper level Mm -hmm. Latin course or an upper level math course. Yeah.
1: I mean, in a sense, then even, even in the upper school, you know, a, a a good piece of the curriculum, like a, even in in that case, a textbook, you know, it is a safety net. I mean, you, you can Mm -hmm. at least rely on that. It might not be the best, uh, um, class in the world, but you're going to get (laughs) through the material and and try to find somebody who can teach it better than that next year.
0: Yeah. Well, this is a great conversation on curriculum. I really enjoyed it. Thank you all for joining me. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Classical Etc. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like this episode, consider leaving us a positive review and sharing it with a friend. A huge thank you to the Memoria Press Podcast Network for hosting our show. Be sure to check out all the great podcasts there. As always, I'm Shane Saxon. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. You've been listening to the Memoria Press Podcast Network, providing a classical Christian perspective on the world of education. To learn more about Memoria Press, visit memoriapress.com. To connect with us, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.